like a kiss being blown, we are on the air for <laughs> another bull session. Um, this time on Joan Didion, and this is something that I've been wanting to do for a while. Ever since she died in December, I've been wanting to do it, um, some form of it, because I've been extremely frustrated with the way in which Joan Didion has been consecrated as this national grandma of letters in the later period of her life. Uh, where she's been kind of the, her identity as this uh, a national mourner, which began with her book Magical Thinking and continued with Blue Nights and and kind of con- went on from there and hit its absolute depressing peak with this Netflix documentary, which I'm actually now glad that we've seen because we're going to discuss this because oh, it's I sort watched of, it. It's yeah, so. With that documentary where um, you would learn if you watched that documentary that Joan Didion is this writer who, whose husband died and then her daughter died and then she was sad. Don't and forget the most important thing, that she's so sad that she forgets to eat. I was not going to forget that the next pe- people act... People have to coax her to eat. The next act was that she can't eat. And then, so in order to coax her into eating, they decide to make a play out of magical thinking on Broadway starring Vanessa Redgrave. In the course of rehearsing for this play, it appears they succeed in feeding Joan Didion a sandwich. She eats the sandwich, and the producers of the play are pleased. Later on, Barack Obama gives her an award, and Thus, you have been introduced to, um, and you've covered the entire career of Joan Didion, if you've been paying attention in the last five years. That is what you know of Joan Didion. Not what matters. But before we get into what matters, um, I'll introduce my my guest. Um, he is, uh, he's, uh, you know, he likes to smell, he likes to dance, he's big in Texas, he's big in France. He is a host of La Parfum Nationaliste podcast. Le, le Nationaliste du Parfum. Ah, that's right. Big in France, we all know. Huge um, in France. And big in Texas. They and, only understand me in Europe. I mean, you know, like all the, all the jazz greats who've been basically hounded out of the United States and had to find their success in Europe, like... Even like, even like Alfred Hitchcock, and even like, and and uh, who was it? What's the comedian that they loved there? Jackie Mason. Um, we talked about that before. Um, mm-hmm. There, the oh Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis. Yeah. The yeah. Jer- yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. So Jacques Masson is with us. Um, I assigned him slouching towards Bethlehem. The uh, the best book that Joan Didion ever wrote, and the one that truly is timeless and is part of the the, the canon, um, inclu- followed by the White Album, which we may not get to uh, on on this occasion, but um, we may just spill into it a little bit. Those two books are the books that matter that Joan Didion wrote. Um, they are a far cry from what she has been celebrated for in the last 20 years. I mean, those books are assigned and so on. Many people know about them, but they don't really know what's going on in those books. And apart from, um, 
apart from diving into those books and specifically slouching towards Bethlehem in this in this bull session, um, I think it's really it's it's like it's a really good time. I mean, if you've been listening to to Filthy Armenian Adventures, you know that I've been quoting multiple times from Slouching Towards Bethlehem on multiple occasions because it has a certain part to play in the mythologizing of Los Angeles, not much of which has occurred in literature. And it's one of the places where it has occurred. And it is not a complete picture by any stretch, but it's a definitely, it definitely leaves an impression to everyone who reads it. And I first read it around sometime in college. And I was, I was especially, I was especially like, you know, galvanized by its obviously libertarian conservative point of view in exactly the sort of um, used for exactly the sort of looking that that I was using it at the time, which was not in the scoring of political points, but in an analyzing cultural insanity. More than that, it's a book that was written in a sort of period of cultural undoing and chaos, which feels very relevant to the one we're in the last two years. Um, now, Beyond that cultural chaos, beyond the 60s for which it stands as a testimony and a very witty testimony, there's also a secret, a personal secret that is being masked in that book. And I have long suspected what that secret is. And we're going to talk about that secret. Um, and it's a it's one that I just before starting to record this, I'd heard confirming rumors over the years here and there, a professor here, story here, story there. But then I just read, I just found a passage or whatever, a, the, the, a, a, something, something in her, a biography of Joan Didion from 2015, which just about absolutely confirms my feminine intuition about it this whole time. Couldn't be more relevant to the current thing that everyone has been talking about in America, in American politics over the last She's few weeks. a pedophile. Weeks. Ooh, it's not that relevant, but it's close. It's in the same. It's in the same category of uh, thing, you know. Okay. It's it's a. It starts with the letter A. Um, but I don't want to get to that until later because I think the first point is to first to ask you. Wait, let me guess. She had an abortion, just as in play it as it lays, and that's why she had to have the baby dropped on her doorstep and name it Quintana Roo. Spoiler alert. Did I just guess it correctly? Yeah, it's that. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That was what I was. That's what I was saving for the other end, and it, you just guessed it. And nice. Yeah. Well, listen. Twin Peaks gave away who killed Laura Palmer very early into the overall run of Twin Peaks. So if you think. That, that this is like, you know, if you think that just because this plot point has been revealed so soon that uh, we, you know, we, there isn't a lot more craziness coming. You haven't seen, you haven't seen, um, you haven't seen the Lynchian mind at work. Okay. Well, There's a of lot. course I guess that because my only familiarity with Joan Didion before this was play it as it lays. I read the book in high school and I uh, loved the movie, which is still very rare. Uh, Couldn't even find I, it. Which I had taped off of, I think, Fox Movie Channel. 
and I saw it in 35 millimeter one time and always loved it. And it makes total sense that she hates that movie after which she wrote a lot more. Yeah. Which which she she wrote. wrote. And it also makes total sense that she and the husband wrote, uh, the Barbara Streisand, Chris Christopherson star is born, which I also watched recently, which has some of the grimmest seventies atmospherics I can imagine. Have you seen True Confessions? Because I think that's the best movie they were ever involved in. No, but I have seen Up Close and Personal, which is really bad, but which I have an affection for because of the Celine Dion song that's on it. The, because you love me. The, the I, di- Yeah, the Diddy and Dunn Hollywood connection is one that is oddly unsatisfying. Um, uh, you know, when you consider how intimately she was a player in Hollywood and how much she wrote about it and blah, blah, blah. It seems like they, they only ever had one foot in the, in the, in the river of any kind of film project they ever did together. And it's very frustrating. It, it's, it's sort of, it's a sort, sort of frustration that I have in general with her version of LA, which everyone in the East, the snooty East has adopted as this as the final truth about LA in which it takes reading Eve Babbitt's her you know friendly nemesis to to correct um it's a very dark and gloomy and ultimately i think edifying for the eastern snob version of LA but it is one that that hits upon a lot of truth as well and it's the truth that overlaps with her being a goldwater girl and observing the uh the kind of cult leftist narcissistic insanity that unraveled all around her in the 60s and the 70s and that is captured so well in these two books um so play it as it lays i also read in college and i'm sure that informed my belief that she had an abortion um she writes about abortion though a lot of other places as well and it was just like what the way she writes in general about society and about I mean, because it's one thing to look back and say, oh, well, yeah, there were the uh, the Manson murders happened and these murders happened and those murders happened. No wonder everyone is so is so crazy in the or, you know, no wonder everything seemed no wonder the center is not holding and blah, blah, blah. That's not why the center wasn't holding for her. She was a rich girl from Sacramento who got a, a beautiful entry uh, entry point into New York. Uh, her essay, her final essay in, in Slouching is about leaving New York and it kind of, it's a very good, it's a very good goodbye letter to New York. Um, and I'll read a passage of that because it has the perfumes in it later. But her, she had everything going for her, this woman. She she had a career, she was writing for Vogue, she was getting her pieces placed, every, little pieces were getting placed everywhere. Um, obviously, she's an enormous talent, but she had, there's a ghost to this book that is personal and not merely societal, and it's not merely the abortion. What I, I didn't know about the greater story. I knew about, I, I suspected fem, feminine intuition-wise, I suspected that she had an abortion, just because everything she wrote about everything was marked with the same sort of kind of mortal dismay and self-hatred that I've heard reported from women that I've known over the years who've reg- had re- abortions that they've then felt remorse over. Um, so it's, and, and it was an abortion that if we're, if we're being, we might as well just 
we might as well just get it out of get it out of the way right now since you guessed it <laughs> but valley of the dolls abortion did she have to fly to south america i don't she, you know it's very possible that she did go to south america just because that, she's had a, a fascination with south america and with or central america or both her whole career like she wrote a book called salvador she wrote a book called on miami but the cumans she wrote a book she was all up into the iran contra affair with salvador she she's she goes to mexico all the time she didn't write about mexico but she they're always like on vacation in mexico so it's very possible that there's a spiritual menstrual pool searching to, for the ghost of her aborted child in south america it's you know and it's not just the ghost of her aborted child it's the ghost of the one true love she ever had because what happened was she was in love with this um, this fi- this literary figure who got her first novel published, um, and and uh, let me find what the let me find his name because it's on uh, it's a uh, da 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 da. Um, God damn it! I can't. Whatever. I'll find his name later. But uh, oh, Noel Noel Parmentel. New York literary figure. I forget where I forget where he was holding court, but he was an influential guy. He she was in love with him, and in New York, in the New York essay at the end of this book, she talks about how she lost. She had she had distanced herself from the love of her life. Basically, it he couldn't continue. I mean, it was ultimately his fault, I think, and it was ultimately I think his pressure that she had to get an abortion. I think that was something imposed on her by the fact that she couldn't stay with him and so on. And she kind of, and he kind of dumped her off into the guy who became her husband, Gregory Dunn, uh, John Gregory Dunn, um, who was an Irish Northeasterner, wrote these very kind of like uppity books about Hollywood throughout his career. They worked together and, you know, he's a fairly, he's a sort of mildly annoying figure as I have perceived him, although I haven't read his books and I heard some of them are good. Um, apparently he was a violent and mean drunk and he would be, he would, he would go off the rails all the time. And she kind of, you know, didn't talk that much about that, but that was something she had to constantly deal with. Um, but a very familiar through line in these books of a woman having forever, forever been detached and severed from the one true love of her life. Um, which is not to say the only true love, but the one, the last true love of her life would be the accurate way of putting it. And you see tremors of it throughout these two books, especially when she's admiring men, when she's admiring John Wayne. Did you read that one? I did. That one's great. Um, I mean, I think they're all good. I'm going to kind of do a scene by scene. Like I want to hop like chapter to chapter because each of them has some, almost every single one of them has something really, I think, based and relevant and touching yeah. in it um and and she and you you sense in her admiration also of jim morrison which is something that she writes about in the opening of white album um which if, we, if we're up to it we'll discuss in a separate full session but uh there is that there is there is an idealized sort of man that she knows she will a kind of love she will never have um and i this tension is sort of just i think strings everything together in terms of her insanity because if you look at her insan if you look at her if you look at her mental kind of her reports of mental breakdown without knowing this 
there will come a point where you start to say, you, you're, woman, you are, you are running Hollywood practically. You've got everyone eating from your hand in Hollywood. You've got access to all the rich and famous people. They all trust you. They all trust you, and they're all telling you their little stories, and they're, you're revealing them to the larger world. And somehow you're maintaining this aura of cool distance, but you're right up in there, and you're a tough cookie running the show. As much as you feign kind of this uh, diminutive uh, fra- frailty, um, why are you so? Fu- you know what? Why are you so uh, depressed? And that's that's the both the limit. That's the mood. And then ultimately the limitation of her work. And it kind of takes over, I think, to a point where it's no longer worth the trouble after these two books. But I'll get to that later, too, because I think that's, um, you know, that's part of the that's part of the bad Joe Didion conversation. And I want to kind of start off with the good Joe Didion conversation, because the fact is that this is a book everyone should read. And it's a book that has a lot of great stuff in it, and it's a book that's politically extremely relevant, right up there with Tom Wolfe's Radical Chic, which in 1973 exposed for all time the comic absurdity of uh, of liberal empathy charitable endeavor <laughs> with that party mm-hmm. where he went to a party, uh, a fundraising party for the Black Panthers in uh, Leonard Bernstein's home. Great work, which we might discuss one day. And this, by friend of Tom Wolfe, Joan Didion, th- these books have a lot of glimpses of the same sort of satire um, very early on, and it's something that rings very familiar to observers of modern American power politics in life and so and, and culture. Um, so I wanted to get, but before, I, before we start opening the book, I want to just kind of get your thoughts as someone who, to my surprise, hadn't read this book before I uh, forced it upon you. Nope. I I had only read Play It As It Lays. Uh, Slouching Towards Bethlehem is obviously excellent and a really enjoyable read. Um, I, I feel like you're going to be disappointed that I kind of hate her personally. I like her writing, but like she's such a essentially frigid and joyless person that I uh, I really like making fun of her. <laughs> like I, I really I really like making fun of her. Like and I can the thing is I can see why it all works so well. I can see why this was so like revolutionary, the new journalism and everything. Uh and her like inserting herself into it. And also it's a case of like when you see too much of yourself reflected back by someone, you don't like it. Like, like whenever we did David Lynch episodes, my brother always kind of had this weird contempt for David Lynch. And he always reminded me of David Lynch. Like everything he created reminded me of David Lynch. <laughs> uh, and it's like, I can totally see like my worst kind of excesses in what she does, but but fundamentally, it's just like, this is a woman who enjoys nothing. Like, the, the, I could just find it so hard to, like, mentally relate to anyone who does not enjoy any, like, sensual pleasures. And you can, just watching her in that movie, you can tell what a, like, 
tight-ass snob, like, carefully cutting those little cucumbers for the sandwich and everything. I don't know. I don't know. I, no, I'm not at all disappointed to hear this. No, 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 no. Because I that because that's the truth. That's 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 her that's her problem and that's her shortcoming. You know, I've told I've told Anna Hachian that who admires her a lot and who recently read Magical Thinking, which I have not read, but I was scared off of reading because everyone I respected, the old time like old uh, based critics that I knew that I know and respect, and I'm going to actually read a devastating. I'm curious to read it now too. I'm I'll, I'll probably read it too, but <laughs> yeah. but and I don't want to take away from anyone who who was helped by it and, and Anna really was, but I told Anna that like you know she's a worthy successor. She can be, I think, as a writer, uh, a better Joan Didion because. Because the same sort of kind of uh, devastatingly like truthful eye and willingness to be to be witty and kind of cut down with a single line a whole uh, a whole a whole house of cards that's just sitting there, but minus the depressiveness that she never shook, and that's my that's my criticism with it. It gets to be you see uh, her her um, play it as it lays is something that as a literary experiment it really works i i like you read it really fast it was meant to be it was she talks about how it's a novel of spaces a white space and how everything happens off screen in this novel and that's what she tried to accomplish and she succeeded but it goddamn it is such a if you take play it as it lays as your vision of la it it's like it's like oh okay your vision of la at 3 a.m. To 3:15 a.m. of a winter day of a winter night, like it's not, it is not a very broad palette of colors. It's a very. Well, I, narrow. I can totally see why she hates the movie of Play It As It Lays because it is too. It's so truthful about her uh, essential like mopey negativity that it's like kind of camp. Right. So it, it seems like it's making fun of her. <laughs> like, which like is, it, which is I'm glad. That's I'm why glad. I like it. I probably will like it too. I couldn't, f- I wanted to it's watch great. it last night. I couldn't fucking find it anywhere. I can't believe nobody's put it out on Blu ray yet. I can't fucking find Dan it anywhere. It's so popular. That was also a, another thing is one of these weird internet things where even though no one's seen a movie made prior to like 1990, somehow everyone on the entire internet knows intricately who Joan Didion is. I just don't believe it. Like when she died, like every every Zoomer, 22-year-old, whatever, just like, "Oh yes, Joan Didion." You don't know who Joan Didion is. I just it was so yeah. fake. And this is something that I this is something that I totally I mean, we should talk a little bit as much as we can really about the stupid documentary because it is Like is that just because of Red Scare that everyone pretends to know who Joan Didion is? Well, cuz I don't recall when I was in high school and into play it as it lays, I don't recall Anyone except like my, uh, like very cultured theater teacher friend, saying one word about. No, it was only video. ever very cultured. It was only ever very cultured people who are like in the journalistic class. And then the the grief novel got like kind of uh, my like feminist like college age friend who was all tuned into whatever they promoted on NPR. You that know, that was well that, the 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 grief. It wasn't even a novel. It was just nonfiction. But the grief stuff. Her grief period, which all her old friends made fun of her for, by the way, the old people who knew her from the old days, because it was so Joan Didion that she became this national mourning figure. In fact, Pauline Kael hated her, or at least made fun of her a lot. And I remember my friend Joseph Epstein, who I'm, who's from whose review I'm going to read later, 
I remember him saying how much he wished Pauline Kale was still alive to roast Joan Didion for her well, they, for her I'm new sure role as the, national mourner in chief. <laughs> I'm sure you've read the the Barbara Grizzetti Harrison essay making fun of her. Oh uh, fuck no! Maybe I have 19, once. Okay, I just found it while you were like like putting together uh, your mic or whatever, and I really love it. <laughs> <laughs> like it's like a perfect parody of her uh, and it's brutal like yeah it's apparently she was really butthurt about it up to the end uh but it's from 1980 and it kind of dissects uh the appeal and the fundamental kind of ease and emptiness of her style my favorite line is Didion is like a latter-day Scarlett O'Hara. She will think about whatever it is she thinks about tomorrow when she dabbles her toes in her pool, all the while calling attention beguilingly to the hair shirt she has fashioned for herself, <laughs> which may explain why so many male critics find her adorable. Oh, and the beginning, the beginning is brutal. When I'm asked why I do not find Joan Didion appealing, I'm tempted to answer, not entirely facetiously, that my charity does not naturally extend itself to someone whose lavender love seats match exactly the potted orchids on her mantle, someone who has porcelain elephant end tables, someone who has chosen to burden her daughter with the name Quintana Roo. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's great. No, in fact, in fact, they were talking about that in her book TV in depth that I listened to last night again after seeing it live twenty years ago uh, yeah. or more. They were talking about that, and she was like, "Yeah, people love. People really do make fun of me a lot." <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, it's like okay. On one hand, we have like Elizabeth Taylor, the ultimate like sen sensual woman who lived life to the fullest, like you know, eating drinking fucking everything and then we have like uh little hair shirt yeah little miss uh, hair aesthetic, shirt torturing herself never eating uh joan didion who you know it, it's so perfect that she likes orchids because i fucking hate orchids uh I, orchids I are the flower of the 2010s <laughs> i will say the one thing i liked about her um about that documentary the one not, not, uh, the one moment in it that I liked is when it talked about how her breakfast at a certain time was a Coca-Cola and a can of salted almonds. Oh, God. Which it sounds... Uh, and the other chick is, you know, the other scene chick is like, I live there and we sat there without talking and it's supposed to be all cool and everything. And I'm like, that sounds awful. Yeah, no, yeah, it does sound... It, it, but the thing, the fact is that it obviously wasn't that bad. Like it was obviously yeah. like everyone was passing through. It was a constant rock and roll stream of drugs, yeah. and, and and she was just there. And you know she was fucking enjoying it. I you love. No, I think the the it. best. Okay, you know all the marketing of that documentary is all like all like about how truthful and personal it is and everything. And I think the best moment in it is when they talk about uh, the five year old on acid from slouching towards Bethlehem and she goes and they're like what did you think when you were watching that expecting her to be shocked and she was like oh it was gold pure gold <laughs> so like that moment of total cynicism yeah. uh, that was really great no no and that's where she's at her best she she mm -hmm. can be really funny when she's not fucking that leaning was the only funny part that they allowed oh, no. yeah. in that whole movie and that whole that whole movie was I mean that whole movie is 
I hate that movie so much that and it because- was surreal because I've I've been talking about Vanessa Redgrave all week because I did an episode on Isadora, and uh, Vanessa Redgrave just shows up and they're just, just these crones flipping through scrapbooks. Um, yeah, she's like I what I you know the way she's like Vanessa and Vanessa Redgrave. I mean, and I like her. Cash I've, died. Yeah, the yeah, way she just cash. talks about like how they had to, you know, you know, she had to like. Basically, like she was like taking care of her on her deathbed, <laughs> studying for that fucking role. <laughs> there's, there's some really horrifying like POV shots where you just see Didion's like Star Wars cantina creature <laughs> stick like stick like arms like yeah. you know going around. But, um, yeah. I mean, and there was also an air of elder abuse about that movie. It was. It was. She would have been better off if they had not made that. I mean, I don't know if she would have been because it sells copies. But fuck. it sells copies. But, but it's her fucking like, no know, good. It's her no good nephew. Like us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For people like us, it's just it is bad. I mean, I never know how to you know proper. I I I think there's this. T- you were you were talking about this. The widow of letters NPR arc. That everyone seems to go down. Uh, you know, Susan Sontag had a similar arc, and at and, the same time, because my same friend was into Susan Sontag at the same time, because she also put out a, you know, th- there was that like w- widow diary something or other at that time. It's the curse of the the woman writer. And when when Joan Didion died, I tweeted that her biggest her greatest achievement was that she was not a woman writer, and in her best work, she is not a woman writer. I mean. She is a woman, she is a writer, but she is a writer first, and she she rises to people like people get all offended by the woman writer thing, mainly because they're idiots, but but you know, at the legitimate level, it's not about it's not about the fact that you're a woman versus a man. It's about the fact that when you're being a this woman, you're not being a writer much of the time. So you have to be a writer first, and being a writer first means like seeing the truth past what you want to believe. I was just listening to the Red Scare with whoever that woman is uh, that they had on this novelist, Shtetl, whatever her name is. And it's like, she is just, I just felt like, like, it was maddening. It was so maddening because every time Anna or Dasha said something that was a, you know, as is their want, like a line of difficult truth about womanhood or whatever, she's like, is that true? Is that but why does why do people have to have children? Why do, it's like over and over and over again there is this ah ah, ah why are you why are you asking me that like why are you saying that doesn't that that, that doesn't sound good, nice and it's just like you're not a writer if that's the fucking those are the fucking questions going on in your mind these bratty little rejections of obvious truth you may not you don't have to accept it as the only truth or the whole truth nothing but the truth but when a truth is expressed you can't be fucking afraid of it because it frays your nerves. And that's what you see over and over again with these, like, with with this whole, like, movement of it doesn't encourage serious thinking or feeling or writing um, when you're, like, embracing these people in their grandma phase, in this in this phase. That's the problem with this documentary, and that's the problem with the last 20 years of Joan Didion. And, you know, that's the problem with her whole later phase. She became, obviously, she became someone who easily served the opposite of what made her good in these, in these, in these early essays. Well, and you can imagine the sort of essays she would write if she saw that documentary about someone else. 
you know. Oh my god! In the seventies, she like, would get rip it. She a review of her own. By the way, there is a book released. You know, again, as a result of that documentary, they released a book of like unpublished pieces she had written over the decades called "Let Me Tell You What I Mean," and I thought it was one of those late late life cash grab collections, but I got it anyway and I read it. And actually there's some really good pieces in there all the way up until uh, she has a really good lecture in there called Why I Write, which again, you know, when she's on, when she's being, when she's being cold and funny, she's at her best. And she's just like, just zeroed in on the truth. She's at her best. And there's some really good stuff in there. Um, Up until her last piece on Martha Stewart, which was also good, like, she wrote that in the late '90s, um, and it was a really, it was a really effective. Uh, it was seemingly sympathetic in a like she felt herself almost, I think, in a way uh, represented by Martha Stewart. But uh, and those are all very perceptive. There are perceptive pieces in there, so she she did retain her her eye, I think, through the, through the decades. But as she sort of became this, you know, the prototype for her final form. As this New York lib, uh, you know, casting her eye appallingly upon the barbaric carnival of American life without retaining the sense of fun that you need to have if you want to make any sort of sense of American life. She has a very disappointing she has this collection of political she started when she started writing these libtard not, not i mean they're not so libtard they're not they're not bad in that in, in their thinking but they're boring and they're long and they're new york review of books bob silver's style and if you know what that is it's just a fucking slog and it's nothing like slouching towards bethlehem they're collected in this book called political fictions where i found the quote um the quote which describes her politics before it became kind of washed out where she says um let me see hold on she said da, 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 da. she's introducing these pieces which begin with actually which begins with a piece about in 88 about the Jesse Jackson campaign which if you literally just swap the words Jesse Jackson and with Donald Trump and Democrat with Republican could could almost verbatim be published about the Trump campaign spiritually it would be it would be the same kind of like point uh in 26 the, the 2016 Trump campaign it was I so I feel like this woman's hit piece got to her and she felt the need to be more of a lib after this cuz it trashes her reactionary politics and compares her uh very unfavorably to Ayn Rand in the latter, latter half of it with all that that entails. Oh God. Um, and uh, if this stuck in her craw so much, I can see it, it causing her to uh, be more of a New York libtard, but like, okay. The, the other thing I can see how like revolutionary this, this book and the style of journalism was, I can but I also think it's easy to imitate, and that's why everyone has done it for half a century. Like, everybody, when they're writing this kind of uh, creative nonfiction stuff, writes with exactly this sort of cold, removed eye, where they are the, they're the kind of... Uh, 
the frosty observer who's too cool for school, the Daria, uh, as it were. And like, you know, when I was reading the slouching towards Bethlehem essay, I was just like, what a fucking drag this lady is. Like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> maybe it's because I'm, I'm like more sympathetic to liberalism lately in the last few weeks, just because I'm so sick of, uh, sick of, small-minded conservatives so much but like i don't know everybody else is like going to san francisco and taking <laughs> drugs and partying and she's you know the little like praying mantis like journalist just like in the corner not saying anything filing it all away for her little condemnatory piece like i don't know yeah i, I mean know. that and that was the that was the uh the, that was the uh overwhelming beef that eve babbitt's had about her which is that she was affecting this. She's a fake. Imagine like being one of the people she hung out with and then reading that. And she's, you know, having this memory of her sitting there like Daria. I mean, um, yeah, which is why I, I'm pretty sure that she was more engaged and cheerful in real life than she lets yeah. on. So it is a fake. It is a it, it is a fake. I mean, the, the 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 her character as 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 she captures it herself in her books is definitely a fake. There's no way she was that dour in real life. I mean, from mm-hmm. what I understand, she wasn't. You know, like mm-hmm. first of all, she was all she was she was met she was amphetamined out from what I understand during those years herself. Yeah. She was not sober. She was not sober at all. She was taking like I think she was like drowning it out with quaaludes to go to sleep, and she was she was all pepped up to write. Um, so she was not like sitting on the sideline, but it is instructive that her, the, the tone she chose to present as someone who was very involved in all that stuff and knew all these people and they were all at her house every day, Jim Morrison, all of them, Janis Joplin dropping in during like, she's there in the middle of it. Her, I believe her book, uh, Slouching Towards Bethlehem is dedicated to Earl McGrath, who I believe is a record producer who was exposed in chaos. That book by Tom O'Neill about the real what really happened in the Manson murders exposed as a total CIA spook who was like in, kind of like a, a, a conductor of all this shit, um, you know, socially and like just kind of who's had his hand in everything. I mean, she was in the highest echelons of Hollywood power and in show business power for decades like this is not an outsider but she's but but the but as if to make that somehow as if to somehow justify that she's she's shrunk herself in her literary persona into this little fly on the wall kind of basically another thing that really triggers me is that you know after half a century of people imitating her imitating those beats those little beats where she depicts something some ridiculous people some stupid people or low class or whatever with this kind of allegedly sort of cool aloof objective thing and then it ends on some kind of deflating deflating subtly satirical note it like reminds me of the the current rash of reporting on like this right-wing whatever scene where those buzzfeed people are clearly like fascinated by whatever they're writing about but they have to word it in a sort of snooty uh kind of faux objective condemnatory tone 
lots of things triggering me. But you can see the influence of it everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, well, you know, she's not the only one who made this genre popular. But I, I was, I was, she's not the only one who kind of like, but, but she's definitely the most, probably the most influential because of the fact that every woman reads, every woman writer, I feel like, kind of reads her at some point and is like, that's yeah. literally me. Uh-huh. But misses all the thi- like, if that was literally you, you wouldn't become a lib. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's the part that gets me because, like, I do believe that there there is something here to be learned from. And it's not to be a BuzzFeed journalist who hangs around with right wingers and then writes a little, uh, you know, writes a little uh, f- uh, fly on the wall type of piece. Uh, that's not what it is. What it is is to see through the bullshit. Like, seeing through bullshit is something every writer should be able to do. Um what you do with what you see is a different question entirely that 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 depends upon mm-hmm. a, a number of things um and ideally is something is 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 something you choose to handle with not complete not with without complete joylessness let's just say mm-hmm. um but like the seeing through bullshit part there is like the the it's not they don't seem to be learning what they should be learning from her you know which is which happens often when somebody becomes this sort of like classroom grandma of letters, uh-huh. um, and I mean I was going to say earlier like it's very instructive that she was involved in everything and at the same time Tom Wolfe wrote Electric Kool Aid Acid Test about Ken Casey and you know that whole LSD movement also he was which he was also had a front seat for when he was writing it and you know that's a whole. That's a completely different emotional register. I mean, you don't have to know, you don't have to have read it, that particular one, to know, to just get the sense from Tom Wolfe that you know, Tom Wolfe was a joyful writer and he himself was completely a sober individual. I mean, he did, for the purposes of that book, drop LSD like once in a room alone in his in his suit, you know, whatever, uh, as uh-huh. a matter, as a journalistic, <laughs> as a matter of d- d- due diligence. But like his, he is not, he's... Like, he, like that New York Times woman who took the edibles a few years ago and like wrote, that, yeah. wrote that thing, you know what I'm talking about? Basically, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a, it sounds comical, but in Tom Wolfe's case, he literally gets away with anything because he's, yeah. he's so great. And there were, there were friends like going back to when they were kids, um, in Sacramento, there's a whole long thing, by the way, Didion and Wolf. But it's a very, and I don't want to say like I'm not saying that one should have been the other, but there's a lot to learn from. And Tom Wolf was also uh, crystal clear in his vision of seeing through the bullshit, as much as he also lo- also was saw the good parts and the and dramatized it all and made it made it a much more living and brief. I mean. You could you you can you you know it all you have to have done is read one thing by Tom Wolfe to kind of Did get Didion it. Did Didion ever get as directly racist as Tom Wolfe? Well, there. Funny you should ask because there are some moments here that are that would certainly be called racist today. And of course, everything that now everything that that you see published today that like has to take measure of. Joan Didion has to get, you know, gets into the whiteness factor and how she was, she was only writing about white California and so on and so forth. But there's some real, there's some, I mean, like, here's an example. Um, there's more than one example, but there's, there's an example that I just read today, peeking into the white album where 
she's talking about, I'm going to read it. Um, she's talking about uh, uh, Huey Newton and Eldridge Cleaver and so on when like during a particular, a particular legal episode in Huey, in with Huey Newton of the, of the Black Panthers. Mm. Okay. So I'm going to read this whole thing because it's pretty funny. And there, there's another, there's another moment in slouching towards Bethlehem in Hawaii that I'm going to read after it. But this, this gets at your question more quickly. So this is a, 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 this is a report of his, she's quoting a report of his psycho of the, like the nurse or whatever at the hospital or whatever. I heard a moaning and a groaning and I went over and it was this Negro fellow was there. He had been shot in the stomach and at the time he didn't appear in any acute distress. And so I said, I'd see. And I asked him if he was a Kaiser, if he belonged to Kaiser. And he said, yes, yes, get a doctor. Can't you see I'm bleeding? I've been shot. Now get someone out here. And I asked him if he had his Kaiser card and he got upset at this and he said, come on, get a doctor out here. I've been shot. I said, I see this, but you're not in any acute distress. So I told him we'd have to check to make sure he was a member. Kaiser is a hospital in LA, by the way. Mm -hmm. And this kind of upset him more. And he called me a few nasty names and he said, now get a doctor out here right now. I've been shot and I'm bleeding. And he took his coat off and his shirt and he threw it on the desk there. And he said, can't you see all this blood? And I said, I see it. And it wasn't that much. And so I said, well, you'll have to sign our admission sheet before you can be seen by a doctor. And he said, I'm not signing anything. And I said, you cannot be seen by a doctor unless you sign the admission sheet. And he said, I don't have to sign anything and a few more choice words. So Didion quotes this in a, uh, you know, deep into a series of, uh, uh, of center not holding sort of passages. And, um, and then she follows it up with, this is an excerpt from the testimony before the Alameda County Grand Jury of, Car of Corrine Leonard. The nurse in charge of the Kaiser Foundation Hospital emergency room in Oakland at 5.30 a.m. on October 28, 1967. The Negro fellow was, of course, Huey Newton, wounded that morning during the gunfire which killed John Frey. For a long time, I kept a copy of this testimony pinned to my office wall on the theory that it illustrated a collision of cultures, a classic instance of an historical outsider confronting the established order at its most petty and impenetrable level. This theory was shattered when I learned that Huey Newton was in fact an enrolled member of the Kaiser Foundation Health Plan, i.e., in Nurse Leonard's words, a Kaiser. So there you go. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so that's a good little moment of, um, of voter ID, if you will, uh, type of episode from the 60s involving a guy who's shot in the middle of political gunfire and a similar... Not similar, but in that same vein, in her essay on Hawaii in Slouching Towards Bethlehem, which I'm going to find. Um, which, you know, poor, poor, poor Joan, where she's, she goes to Hawaii to try to avoid getting a divorce, you know, for like a long period of time with her husband. <laughs> I mean, that's pure. That, always, always on these miserable vacations. And yeah, all these like, yeah, endless vacations. Oh my God, there's. A character in this essay is Henry Kaiser. <laughs> no relation, I think, unless it's the same guy who founded the hospital or paid for it or whatever. But then here somewhere she says, um, let me find the passage that I, that, I, that I want. I want so bad. Um, hold on, hold on.
I'm going to have to search my screenshots for a second. It's hard to keep track of all this shit. The docket. <laughs> the docket. Um, I've been using tabs, like the the little oh, colored things that you oh, put on box. Yeah, I have yeah. to. Fi- I have to figure out a system. Okay, I found it. I have to. I have to do tabs, and then I have to write an index of what the tabs contain because oh, I refuse to mark on books. Yeah, I don't. I don't like marking either. I don't even like like highlighting or anything like that. Uh, uh-uh. I I will not touch a book with a pen unless it's like maybe sometimes I'm giving it as a gift. But anyway, go on. So, okay, here it is. Even among those who are considered island liberals, the question of race has about it, to anyone who has lived through these hypersensitive past years on the mainland, a curious and rather engaging ingenuousness. There are very definitely people here who know the Chinese socially, one woman told me. They have them to their houses, The uncle of a friend of mine, for example, has Chin Ho to his house all the time. End quote. Although this seemed a statement along the lines of some of my best friends are Rothschilds, I accepted it in the spirit in which it was offered, just as I did the primitive progressivism of an island teacher who was explaining, as we walked down a corridor of her school, about the miracles of educational integration the war had brought. Look, she said suddenly grabbing a pretty Chinese girl by the arm and wheeling her around to face me. You wouldn't have seen this here before the war. Look at those eyes. <laughs> so that reminds me of my, my favorite uh, one that I read was the Joan Baez one. The Joan Baez one is really good. That is the funniest one to me. That the whole, the whole of it reminds me of Robert Altman's Nashville, which we talked about not long ago. It's a, it's a, um, there is a great, yeah, there's a great like recurring, basically anytime there's some sort of, pa- of she, this is a recurring theme of slouching towards Bethlehem where, where, um, and actually both of them, where there's some sort of political pageantry or activism going on and she is not buying any of it yeah. ever. And the running theme is, is really that. This is a middle class, like, you know, as we see today, this is a hobby of essentially bourgeois people who have been somehow removed from the real dramas of life and who need to make something exciting for themselves. And this is basically her take on every form of political activism she observes in the 60s and 70s, up and down. Every single time it comes to the same thing. Um, whether it's, whether it's the, uh, the, she was at the DSA meeting she reports from in the beginning of White (laughs) Album, the other one, the ones she reports from here, Comrade Lasky, the Comrade Lasky chapter is a good one too, early on, because Comrade Lasky, so he's this communist, uh, act, he's a communist, you know, revolutionary in LA who goes around passing out pamphlets, uh, to nobody in particular, trying to sell pamphlets and then they have meetings uh, um, with the of his fellow communists who consider the American Communist Party to be sellouts, so they're the real communists, and da 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 da, da. and it's you know it's basically like the t- the typical cult um, kind of vibe, you know, where it's like these little people who think that they are on the cusp of changing the world forever, 
and who are ult- completely on the margins of anybody's consciousness and who think and who are so who kind of compensate for their totally meaningless existence by extreme levels of paranoia. So, you know, he's talking, he's like, she's meeting with this young communist, he's 25. He reminds you of a very, of a very particular type of Twitter account, you know, like the, the t- way she describes the vagueness of the goals there the, is, the vagueness. Is, is perfect. Yeah. That like hierarchy of communist goals there. Oh, I, f- I found my favorite line from the Joan Baez one. A month or so after her appearance at Berkeley, Joan Baez talked to Ira Sandpearl about the possibility of tutoring her for a year. She found herself among politically knowledgeable people, he says, and while she had strong feelings, she didn't know any of the socioeconomic, political, historical terms of nonviolence. It was all vague, she interrupts, nervously brushing her hair back. I want it to be less vague. <laughs> <laughs> And the, the the line, the kind of um, the ultimate the 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 passage from the Comrade Lasky one, uh, which I'll read right now. That kind of captures what all of her the similar ones are, um, is the following. As it happens, I am comfortable with the Michael Laskies of this world, with those who live outside rather than in, those in whom the sense of dread is so acute that they turn to extreme and doomed commitments. I know something about dread myself, well, no, Dutch own, and appreciate the elaborate <laughs> systems with which some people manage to fill the void, appreciate all the opiates of the people, whether they are as accessible as alcohol and heroin and promiscuity, or as hard to come by as faith in God or history." But of course I, yeah, and then she continues, I don't know if this was, I wanted to read this, but um, this is, this is also touching, by the way, the next paragraph. But of course I did not mention dread to Michael Lasky, whose particular opiate is history, capital H. I did suggest depression, did venture that it might have been, quote, depressing for him to see only a dozen or so faces, a dozen or so likes, at his last May Day (laughs) demonstration at his last May Day demonstration, but he told me that depression was an impediment to the revolutionary process, a disease afflicting only those who do not have ideology to sustain them. Michael Lasky, you see, did not feel as close to me as I did to him. I talk to you at all, he said, only as a calculated risk. Of course you function, your function is to gather information for the intelligence services. Basically, you want to conduct the same probe the FBI would carry out if they could put us in a chair." He paused and tapped the small red book with his fingernails. And yet, he said finally, there's a definite advantage to me in talking to you because of one fact. These interviews provide a public record of my existence. So true. So true. Poor Michael Lasky of the CPUSA ML. <laughs> Marxist-Leninist is the ML, by the way. They're con- they're, it's called the CPUSA ML to distinguish themselves from the American communist, the communist party of America. Um, Can which you believe people still, fall they still fucking stuff? do that. People in our people circle still do that. <laughs> yeah. We have to put up with them. <laughs> they, they still do it. They have they, it in their handles. They said, and Marxist Leninists, they have people have it in their names. They identify it. It's unreal. It's unreal. Tell it. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. <laughs> Jeez. It's, it's, um, yeah. Now I will say like, 
And there's a lot of, I love her, her, okay, so the piece on, speaking of heroic men, um, well, let's get it to, let's, it's about time for our, I think, uh, regularly scheduled cigarette break. Okay. So sure. when we come back, we're going to talk about the piece on the, uh, uh, some of her talk, her stuff on heroic men. I think the, uh, you know, we, we, we opened the uh, shit gates on her really early. So I think we need to, you know, do a little bit more appreciation of the good parts of this um, afterwards um, and, and get into some of the, I think, some of the politically astute stuff um, where, which I wish she did not detach from so completely and, uh-huh. um, you know, kind of go down the, go down the list of these scenes uh, when we're back um, and, and again, return again to what I think, cause, cause you, you preempted it cause right away I could tell that you were going to realize this. Cause if I had somebody on who is a Joan Didion fanatic, this would never come up, but what you identified, which is the, the, the app, the, the total lack of enjoyment of anything. <laughs> it's not like it's, it's, it's not just a, it's not a, it's not just a bug or just, it's not a feature. It's a bug, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's not a feature. It's a bug. And it's not a bug that is merely, um, kind of part and parcel with the overall thing. It's a bug that, that, that ultimately I think, you know, like really crippled the latter half of her career. Um, and it's something that especially because the mood and the temper and the time in which she is writing these books is so relevant to our own spiritually, which I, you know, I'll, I still hold to that. Um, it's all the more important not to take the gloom out of these books with you. And it's really, it's really something to identify and to identify the problem and the limitation of that gloom, which is what we're going to do after you smoke your cigarette and after the, the people, the looky, the looky loos who aren't, don't pay money for podcasts are, are ushered out of this room and told to go back home, get into bed. Now it's, you know, get the, the, now, now the after hours part is going to start. The adult, adult portion is going to start. Okay. Okay. I'm here. I'm back. So am I. I never went anywhere. Okay. I, I didn't have to the cigarette with my, my small, frail hands. Just like, <laughs> just like Joan, Joan did. did you. <laughs> I'm gonna eat spaghetti after this. Just, just to, just to sympathize <laughs> with her hands. Pot of spaghetti. <laughs> yeah. Well, the spaghetti here, spaghetti arm, forearms. Um, no, because uh, I just want a giant uh, pot of spaghetti with butter on it. Oh fuck, man! As a keto boy, I've had like spaghetti once in the last. Six I know, years, pasta like desserts are not what kill me. It, you know, they don't lure me that much. It's pasta. I could kill myself on pasta. Yeah, instantly. I mean. Uh, yeah, pasta. Let's see. What would be my 
kill well yeah i mean i have i had to i had to undo wanting french fries with every meal uh that was an early thing and hash browns which i've also really loved with breakfast stuff you know Mm -hmm. uh i had to undo that that was the hardest thing to undo pasta like you know it's more like when i'm somewhere and it's obviously really fucking good at this restaurant you're just like i want it i want that in my mouth i like the sensation of being like choked by pasta like like just swallowing it without chewing and just being choked by it oh I, i found another good line from that hit piece I can't resist quoting something Gloria Steinem once called out to a journalist on her way to interview Didion. Ask her how come if she spends all her time crying and swimming and struggling to open a car door, how she finds the energy to write so much. (laughs) (laughs) It's, you see, this is why, but you see, this is why I was so passionate in my Eve, Eve Babbitt's episode because like I, I made I don't know you've I gotta gotten, check her out I don't know if you've gotten that far yet yeah you have to check her out because well first of all it's just it's literally just you know one book and then some extras like basically it's two books max but it's the uh-huh. one book very thin called uh, Slow Days Fast Company where same period of time and it's all about LA it's not you know the thing is that Didion is a Sacramento farm you know rich farm girl ultimately she's not an LA girl She's a Sacramento girl. She's a California desert valley girl, uh, central valley girl. It's a very different vibe, very different vibe. And that's really what most of this actually, her best stuff, I mean, including the San Bernardino piece, the, the dreamers of a golden dream, um, the one about the murder in San Bernardino, her best mm-hmm. stuff is in that kind of desolate landscape. She, her, her ho- like, you know, her version of Hollywood is just this one, I mean, there's some funny shit in here. Like the one where she talks about kind of, she makes fun of everybody's kind of almost Hollywood hatred in one of these pieces. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you got there because it's later on. It's a, it's later on in the, in the, in the book. Um, what is it? Which one is that? Well, I'll get, I'll get, get to it at some point, but she can be very funny when she's talking about people who get, who get all hoity toity about Hollywood, but her play it as it lays vision of Hollywood is, is it's most stereotypically kind of depraved, you know, and it's mm-hmm. not depraved in a fun way. It's depraved in a woman gets an abortion, kills herself way, you know, like it's not Eve Babbitt's is someone who without in any way denying the, the kind of denying the hangover, let's just say mm-hmm. without denying the hangover, you get a real sense of like, why every fucking motherfucker in America moves here and stays here and never fucking leaves. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's an actual, there is an actual form of being alive in this city, you know? And it's my, it's one of my, obviously it's one of like my overarching plot lines of this podcast to mythologize LA at, in my way, make a claim Mm -hmm. to it. That's mine. Because no one ever does it, because no one's ever from here, because this is the one city in the fucking world, apparently, where you're a stranger if you're born here, because no one else is born here. Like, I'm saying, like, in the in the run of people you meet, they're all from somewhere else, and they all have this, like, fucking snobby attitude about their own, the, the place that they came to, and that they're the ones making shitty. Like, they're not, they have this, like... LA is you, babe. You just got here from Kansas. That's you. That's you. the LA people. LA, the LA people talk about is you. It's not me. Funnily enough, I'm one of the only people that's actually from Austin too, and experience the same thing. It's like, got it. Yeah, uh, right. 
Say, speak where, on it. Where, speak where on people, it. People who moved here ten years ago complained about everything that they assisted in changing about it. You know, right? It's like speak on it because how is that supposed? To, it's a totally different world, and it's endlessly frustrating. I mean, I just had. I'm just recording an episode over the course of um, several visits with a rabbi, uh, which will be the next, probably the next, you know, main, regular episode, and. Um, he's been here for 30 years and it, he's just like, no, nah, don't really get it. <laughs> I think what, what, uh, makes me really mad about people's misperception of Austin is that I remember in the nineties, uh, you know, the, the much celebrated slacker Austin nineties, like everybody was really ugly. Like, uh, <laughs> it wasn't like attractive people. It was like, uh, old hippie nerd dudes like balding with ponytails and then they're like big titty wives and girlfriends and that's what i remember but i remember it okay so i remember austin 2008 i'm on the fateful cross-country drive back to la from my nine months in dc and we stopped there in Austin for the first and only time I've ever been there for a few nights. And yeah, I mean, I remember just being like, I, mean, I, I you know, we were just like on 6th or whatever it's called, you know, with the the downtown music. Which theme. I like, which all the transplant people hate. I love the trashy tourist 6th Street chaos. Uh, it's the only part every, I know. Everybody hates that. Oh, yeah. they hate it. Okay. <laughs> it's literally the only part they I They hate know. that part of Nashville too, uh, Broadway or whatever. They're, they're uh, 6th Street <laughs> where all the tourists go to puke. Um, and I liked that part of Nashville as well. Which they, I generally like the like um, corny touristy parts right. of towns. Although I will like, say, I like that about San Francisco too. I like that about New York. My first time, uh, I like Broadway, but I will say that for New York, like truly, truly, that is not the point of New- like. It's it's fun the first time you see it, and it's like it sticks in your kind of finds its way into your heart. But it truly, it is like the the you know the lower parts of New York or even the upper parts. But but rather than the the Broadway, like uh, Times Square part, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That so that with that, it's pretty accurate. Um, but but yeah, everywhere else you're talking about, you're right. It's like there's basically like three to four neighborhoods, you know. There's and there and and there's no reason not to absorb the postcard neighborhood. Like the postcard mm-hmm. neighborhood is on a postcard for a fucking reason. If you can't find a, if you can't find some way to enjoy. Even, even like the, the Hollywood Walk of Fame, you know, I'm there all the time because I live within walking distance of it. And and it's yeah, it's 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 trashy. But like there's also Musso and Frank Grill right there. And there's also all this shit still right there. If you can't find a way to enjoy all that, you're you're just being performative, I think, you know, or you're yeah. being a little you're being a little uh, brat who needs to get smacked upside the head. Sorry. Yeah. I like that part of Nashville too, by the way. I was on Nashville and the same drive. I we passed by Nashville and stayed. Yeah, there I night. loved Nashville, and everybody was just just every time. Every time I encountered anyone who lived there, they were telling me how much I had to hate it. Which you know, I'm guilty of doing the same thing about Austin. But then someone like um, uh, my friend Barrett Avner from the Contain podcast, he like absolutely loves Austin uh, <laughs> and it, like sees it with these fresh eyes. Um, which I find charming, you know, it's, so I guess the same thing happened to me with Nashville where everybody was like, no, that sucks. This all sucks. The thing that you like is bad. And it's like, no, actually, I think it's cute. (laughs) 
I think it's super cute. I loved I loved Nashville and I loved Austin when I went there and I'm I imagine it's completely um completely different now than it was in 2008. I'm just like kind of neutral cuz it's the only place I've ever lived. So it's like yeah, you know, I I get into all sorts of grass is greener type funks. Um but I'm I'm used to it, you know. So anyway, um, so anyway, we'll get to um, we'll get to yeah. You, but you know, as it as it pertains to LA and the the point of this detour, um, the point of this detour is that Eve Babbitts is someone you should read if you read Joan Didion, and if you think that tells you all about LA, did Eve you, Babbitts ever get fat? She stayed hot until the end, until she burned, she set herself on fire. So it's a very sad story with Eve Babbitts, but it's also instructive because I'll tell it in, I'll tell it in brief. Um, she was, you know, everybody wanted to have sex with her and she wanted to have sex with everybody. She was this, she went to Hollywood High. She was dating, she was dating like, you know, whirlwinds out of high school from like the age of 14. Um, so she's this muse, she's a real deal, genuine muse of the kind you don't really hear about anymore, you know, especially like, like how many, how many muses other than in Hollywood, you know, actresses and stuff, but like, we're talking about with a lot of different people from a lot of different cultural power centers. Yeah. And so she lived this li- this this life, but you know, also very druggy life, and and ultimately, like she hit, she she had to get sober in the early eighties, um, finally, and she nevertheless retained her spirit um, all the way up. You know, she got super into dancing and like tango and salsa and all this shit. She even wrote a book about the dancing scene in L.A. Tango scene, I think it's called two. It's called uh, it's called two steps or something. Or one step, two step, or something like that, or one two. I don't know. Whatever it is, she was she she still she still had, she still was a vibrant vibrant um, lady until she fucking dro- tried to light a cigar in her car in her old Volkswagen Bug in the late nineties, dropped it on her sequin dress, set herself on fire, and experienced severe severe burns that totally took her out of the game. And from that point on, she became a recluse who never left the apartment and who became addicted to talk radio and became super right wing and based. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. So it's kind of fun. So until this writer, Lily Analik, who you've heard on Brady Sinellis, found her, found her basically in 2010 or so and wrote a book about her and, you know, tried to become friends and so on. But she became a total recluse when she burnt herself up uh, really, really bad um, and could no longer be this the free the physical free spirit she always was. That's um, interesting because uh, Michael Jackson also got burned terribly on the set of a Pepsi commercial and then created the Michael Jackson burn unit, which was sort of the prototype of the Neverland Ranch, uh, you know, Howard Hughes insane world. So, yeah, people getting burned changes them <laughs> into something else. <laughs> It does change him. It was, it's like, you know, it's really, it's a dark one to read. It's a dark thing ultimately, but 
you know, she's someone who never got married. She was like, she's, she's basically, you know, it's kind of a soul of a gay man type of thing. Um, she just is someone who couldn't, that just wasn't the life for her, you know? And then it's the question mm-hmm. of inevitably, where are you going to end up when you have that kind of life? She squeezed as much out of it as almost anyone can squeeze because she was attractive until she basically burned herself up. You know, like she was um, from 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 the age of 14. She always claimed there were more attractive people around, like she they were in high school. But pretty soon, because she was so intelligent, everybody was was just enamored of her. And she had a bunch of affairs with gay men, too, who were enamored of her. Like it wasn't they weren't it wasn't beard situation. She literally was so attractive to them that they were based. They fell in love with her. Um, and she's yeah. extremely funny and, you know, all that stuff. I mean, you could tell from her writing, you'd be like, oh yeah, this is somebody that you would want everywhere. Um, and so the fact that she even managed to produce a, a book at all is an achievement and it really, and it is really the best book. Slow Days, Fast Company. I will, from this point on, die on this hill because there's no book that's, that, that, that's as profoundly, um, accurate about LA and enjoyable than that one. Like, it's just not, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. If there is another one, I haven't seen it. It's definitely not played as it lays. I know that Brett Easton Ellis has written a lot about LA, but I've only read less than zero and which is done very much in the play it as it lays style and influence. So mm-hmm. I don't know if Brett Easton Ellis, I don't know if he's, you know, his podcast is sort of a, uh, in that, in this mode, but I don't know if, and he loves Eve Babbitts. That's how, I think that's how I found out about her ultimately, uh, was, was through him. Um, um, and oh, I just Googled Eve Babbitts perfume and it came up instantly. Eve Babbitts's talent for description is so otherworldly that she doesn't even need to describe a perfume's aroma to convey its essence. It was the scent of unbelievably good taste with just an edge of blissful sex. She writes of Le De Givenchy. It was sunshine and beauty, something you could wear with a bathing suit or jeans. Nice. Yeah, it's, it's and, and with, I'll skip over to, um, you know, at the end of her New York essay where she reveals that her heartbreak, she, uh, okay, so, Joan Didion says, this is what it's all, this is what it was all about, wasn't it? Promises? Now when New York comes back to me, it comes in hallucinatory flashes, so clinically detailed that I sometimes wish that memory would affect the distortion which it is commonly, with which it is commonly credited. For a lot of the time I was in New York, I used a perfume called Fleur de Rocaille. Okay, you're going to have to read it because I don't know how it's to fucking... Uh, Caronne Fleur de Rocaille and L'Air du Temps. There we go. Uh, I have L'Air du Temps. They still make that. Uh, they don't. I don't believe Caron makes uh, Fleur de Rocaille anymore. But it's a it's a famous one. Um, L'Air du Temps is uh, Nina Ricci. It's the one from the mid '40s with like a dove on the top of the bottle, and it's what's referenced famously in Silence of the Lambs, uh, where uh, Hannibal Lecter notices that uh, Clarice Starling is wearing. She wears L'Air du Temps sometimes, but not today. <clears throat> yeah so yeah i mean the the you know to wrap the eve babbitt's connection again you really have to read her as well if you think that you're getting if you want to get a more complete picture of la in the 70s mm-hmm. um in the 60s and you know as i said in that episode um 
one of the things that I noticed about Eve and about like how I think one of the reasons one of the reasons and it was in her book Hollywood's it, it was in her book Eve's Hollywood which is her first book Slow Days is her second book those two are the ones to read um, and Eve's and and the first one is a little bit more uneven but the second one is perfect from finish, from beginning to end to to end um, and in Eve's and in Eve's Hollywood her best essay is about Hollywood High which is where my mom went to school also. And it's on Sunset Sunset Boulevard, and its its mascot is the Sheik, which is the character. Oh, of course, sick! Yeah, which is literally Rudolph Valentino is the mascot. Is that where Amanda went to? Uh, no, she, Amanda went to a Tony uh, private school. Okay, she didn't specify which one, but I, you know, it's one of it's basically one of three. It can only be one of three. Um, uh, Hollywood High is a public school. And um, right in, you know, right in the middle of it. And back in the day, public schools could actually be, you know, people were actually okay sending their kids there, you know, like mm-hmm. Eve Babbitt's dad was a composer in Hollywood. Um, they were immigrants and they were like, compo- he was a, you know, successful Hollywood composer. So she had all kinds of Hollywood people going, going through her upbringing too. And like her, I don't know, I think her God, Stravinsky is her godfather or something like that. Um and she, when she writes about Hollywood High and the cliques and the sorority, like the sorority kind of the power girls, the 20 power girls there, which she was not a part of, um, but she writes about them admiringly as much as she like also was detached from them. She writes about them admiringly. She has this beautiful, there's this beautiful moment in the, in the, in the essay on Hollywood High where she describes how the administration thought that these girls, these 20 blonde, uh, just like queens of the land, were had too much power. And they they shut down their clubs, their, soror- quote, their actual sororities, it was called. The administration shut down their sororities, and the entire student body had an uprising at the auditorium to protest in their defense, just because they were so cool. And they thought it was so unjust. And when I read this, this is in the 50s. And I read this and I just think to myself, oh, man, this is literally me. Like, this is my, this is how I became who I am, which was in high school. Uh, high school was extremely formative for me in 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 all kinds of ways. And um, I feel like making her Hollywood high experience the kind of linchpin of her L.A., of her understanding of L.A., which it is, is really true to LA. LA is a very, I feel like LA has a certain high school vibe to it um, in the sense that you have all the, it's, it's, it's such a big world. Like, and I'm talking about high school in the public sense where it's a lot of people, a lot of different, you know, a lot of different cliques and, and, and kind of friend groups and stuff. Not the, not the, like the small little private school type of high school, but like the big American high school experience where you've got the jocks and you've got the sports and you've got the this and you've got that. LA has a similar vibe because it's like, oh, it's all over the fucking place. It's got whole whole regions of it are ethnically kind of defined, but also they intermingle constantly and overlap. And it's kind of this inscrutable world where there is a sort of mythical kingdom or crown, prom queen, prom king, uh, whatever, you know, uh, the, the, the big boys in show business or whatever industry happens to be going on, the big kind of locations, the big kind of ceremonies. It's got that those elements, but there's also like a lot of ways to build your own little uh, to build your own little niche and to find your footing. And it's a, and it has that sort of battlefield 
a similar battlefield to the high school campus to me. So it made a lot of sense that that figured large in her imagination. Mm-hmm. Even though it's like fucking 50 years before I went to high school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did you think about high school? What was your high school? What, what's your, what are your thoughts on high school? I had a great time in high school. Uh, I was very popular. I was, despite being openly gay, <clears throat> openly gay when that was not a popular thing to do and kind of had consequences, I was nonetheless a class favorite nominee senior year. Um received a lot of write-in votes uh i loved high school because basically you just have to come hang out with your friends and exert minimal effort um i did a lot of plays my like best friend was my theater teacher um i enjoyed shocking people uh yeah i had a great time i i like intermingled in lots of different groups like i didn't i wasn't like confined to theater or just goth or anything like that i moved around a lot but i I really had fun (laughs) and you know uh i think it's much harder to uh like they movies always sell you this narrative that like you have a terrible time in high school and you're like a wallflower and everything and then you blossom when you move to the city and like become gay and like find yourself and i always found the opposite to be true i think it's a lot more depressing to uh just become like a gay adult in the city (laughs) well yeah i mean i could totally see that if i that was not a factor in my high school experience i did not Mm -hmm. know that this was a card hidden you know how like there's sometimes you get a, a hand in poker or in you're playing cards and it's like the card is stuck one card is stuck to the other and it looks like you only have four cards but you actually have five and the fifth one is stuck under one of the other cards and so that was my gay card uh-huh. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't unst <laughs> i didn't have it i didn't see it in the hand for a while <laughs> oh it was so it was so fun like uh shocking people with that um it would have it would have been that. yeah i mean yeah. it you know mortifying as the whole thing was for me overall if there was if it if it, if it had been revealed in in a certain time in a certain place it could that i guess it could have been a fun thing to play with yeah but i mean regardless the point it, one way or the other you were different and weird in a way i was different and weird in a way very much so and so in that sense, we were the same. And for me, what it, there were many things besides that, besides besides the sexuality. Although I'm sure that you know manifested in its own way, regardless. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it was like for me, it was like I had a very, it was a pretty cinematic arc because like you know I started you know ninth grade obscurity. You know I make it on the soccer team as a JV. Da 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 da. But I'm not I'm not anybody. I'm nobody. I'm not popular or anything. I have my best friend um, and I have my kind of like group from middle school. But we're kind of, you know, we're not as t- as high school happens. You kind of every time one group friend group that isn't really that tight necessarily gravitates from middle school to high school or elementary school to middle school. Challenges are posed, you know, because there are new people. There's new new endeavors. And so ninth grade was just whatever. And then 10th grade is where I became as I've said often, red-pilled, I, or at least I acted on it for the first time, and I wrote my first article about affirmative action, my second one about Bill Clinton, and, mm-hmm. and you know, started a news, newsletter on campus and got all up into the idea of being a writer and, and, in, and in provoking people and shocking people with heterodox 
views and opinions. And that, and I, at the same time, experienced a an arc from an underdog. Uh, uh, what's the fucking guy? Rudy arc in uh, in my in my soccer in my sports career. So I had a foot in the athletic world that was very satisfying to my lifelong dream, you know, ambitions. And, and so the combination of these, these two things really gave me this huge boost in confidence. And I really loved high school the rest of the way. Um, I discovered Ayn Rand in 10th grade, all of it, it all happened in 10th grade for me. And so I had three years of really, of, of being able to consciously appreciate and enjoy high school, despite being not at all popular in the conventional sense, only in the totally unconventional sense, mm-hmm. you know? So that was satisfying. And it's kind of the arc that's repeated itself through the rest of my life, honestly. It like from, you know, it's like a cycle. <laughs> mm-hmm. Where? Yeah. I had to forcefully become popular again. Right. We I mean, I'm not... I, methods on the internet. Right. And you, and you succeeded. I haven't become popular yet again, but, you know, it's like this... It's uh, you're a, popular. Well, whatever. You're popular. The point is that, yeah, I mean, I've had to, you know, there are these, it's weird to look at life and be like, find a certain story that played out somewhere for me, for you, it's high school, for me, it's high school. And to see that like having repeat, kind of repeated in college in the similar way, because I was, I, I, I landed in college in a very depressed manner, very Joan Didion depressed was I. Oh, me too. Yeah. I had my play it, play it as it lays year. Where, where yeah, me too. Put me on, on SSRIs, and I went schizo. You know, I avoided the SSRIs, um, but I, 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 you know, it was a combination. There were three things for me that that threw me into de- my first severe depression, and it was the combination of a leaving high school and entering college not as I expected to enter college. First of all, I didn't get into the one I wanted to get into. My best friend did, and he went there. Um, so I was going two hours away, Santa Barbara. That was, you know, disappointment number one. But then compounding that was sort of I had a, a too too complicated and inscrutable a sort of a crash in summer. Actually, in Armenia is when it occurred, just from like an intellectual like, like a crisis of confidence after being so confident for those three years. And so I I I hob I hobble into Santa Barbara, you know. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of this fish out of water. Um, I don't have any friends there really every, all my kind of like all my a- egotistical, um, ambitions ha- are, are not being materialized. And like, you know, it's like you have these, you have these, uh, setbacks sometimes. And that was the first major one. Plus my grandmother died that first year. And that was a huge shock. Cause that was the first time I lost anybody who was so close to me. Mm-hmm. So all these things, plus I was on Accutane. And every, you know how they were poo-pooing the word? I was on Accutane, and it was the best decision of my entire life, and I'm so glad I did it. I'm not going to regret it because it totally cured my it's The acne. only thing that works. It's the only thing that works. All I know is I also got super depressed in a level which, like, uh, in a level which... You know, it's like I was already I was already depressed before I went on it. I got on it. And then like on there were two occasions, two days. I can remember two specific days. Um, I don't remember exact. I remember one of them physically. And I remember the other just that it happened where I hit such a level where I was like, oh, this is what being suicidal feels like. Like and I wasn't going to be I wasn't going to do it. OK, but I was like it was literally for hours 
the feeling of like, oh, I see now how a person can do that. You know, so I was like, this is not, and I, and part of in the back of my head, I knew that it wasn't, na- it was not, na- it was not a natural mood. You know, I was like, this is not. Did you do six months or a year? Six months. I did six months too. Yeah, I did six and months. And I took care of all of it. I had terrible cystic acne, and I got rid of it for good. But it, yeah, it didn't have any like mood effects on me. It's just like your entire body peels off in huge strips of skin for six months. But yeah, yeah, your face <laughs> becomes this. Your face becomes this like weird. <laughs> like I don't know. You, you look know. like a vampire. Yeah. Like I looked really pale, and like my lips looked really red because they were always like bloody. <laughs> you know, from you have to drink. Off. You have to drink nine gallons of water a day. To uh-huh. stay hydrated. That was one thing I remember about it. But ultimately, I mean, physically, it was great. I had no, you know, the inconvenience of it in terms of dry face, that was all, you know, it's all just stuff you could take care of. The, the, I, I do believe, I, I'm, I wouldn't be, I don't know for sure. I don't know for sure anything, but I wouldn't be surprised if that chemically, you know, combined with the other Made things. Made you gay. Maybe, yeah, possibly that might be it. Because, you know, I remember in, um, it was then that I first saw my first instance of gay porn and it was by surprise. <laughs> it was then. And it was, and it was, and it disgusted me. Like it legit disgusted me. I was watch. It was a three way, right? Two guys and a girl. And that's how, that's how it happened. That's how I was, that's how it, 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 I made the mistake because I, I didn't know that at some point one guy was going to go down on the other guy. And when it happened, I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I just had a physical reaction and I wasn't turned on by it at all. Even though I had, I had often paid attention more to the men in these sex scenes, but it was never like, you know, it was always, it was always like rationalized, you know, by the overall sex act being something supposedly <laughs> something to be aspired to. and receipts, there was Accutane. Before, yeah, what? Well, what was so? So, yeah, I don't think it was to turn me gay, but um, it was definitely a, you know, when you need when you need confidence the most is probably as a freshman in anything, right? Like that's where you need the most confidence, and that's where you have it the least typically. And for me, I was like, you know, it was a big. It wasn't so much that I didn't have it as much as it was a big drop from where I was at the end of high school. So it was like. It's harder to do something. It's harder to experience something bad when it's a drop than if it just was like kind of your baseline. I feel like, for example, this pandemic, um, I feel like it was much harder on people who were doing great or at least, you know, starting to feel the wind behind their backs before it happened in certain ways and think things were opening up and all these, you know, for the first time in a while. And then the pandemic happens and you're like, boom, and you know, shit lose, let's say whatever, it, assuming something bad happened to your life track. It's hard when you know that, wait a minute, just yesterday when it wasn't for the stupid, um, uh, uh, fabricated virus from China, uh, all these things were going great. Now all these things are absolutely in the toilet for no, for, through no fault of my own. And, uh, it's harder to kind of deal with that as a drop than if it was just like, oh, I was kind of doing, I was kind of treading water before. Now I'm treading water still, and I'm not not that much has changed for me, except that life is even more a little bit more boring or you know inconvenient or whatever. It can be a little bit more. I don't know. I feel like it could be. It can be worse sometimes when you were when it's a big drop. It's an obvious point that I'm spending too much time on, honestly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
But what were you, by the way, where were you feeling? Well, I mean, you've talked about this a lot, but I wonder if you've had a chance to analyze it. A, a kind of, you know, now that we're over two years, a, where, I mean, your podcast has exploded and now you're a professional full-time podcaster. So it's it's only, the arrow has only gone up for you, right? Since before the pandemic? Uh, Yeah. The pandemic has been great for me career-wise. It went like really basically from the start because there was the whole podcast boom when it started and everyone was indoors and everybody chose to like start their podcast then. But the fact that mine had been around for a year before that and was already kind of established uh, gave us a leg up. Um but yeah, it's 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 only gone up for me. Yeah, um, I figured it must have been great for you. Minus it whatever was, and that was bullshit. before you know people really liked that we were telling the truth about COVID as it was happening. Um, like now, all the dirtbag leftists and everything, their opinions have been laundered for them by Glenn Greenwald and the whole pipeline and everything. So they'll. all express their unhappiness with how COVID was dealt with. Uh, but yeah, I mean that whole year it's, we were talking about it constantly and, um, everything I thought about it like remained consistent. Um, and there was a real fun and like cross pollination at the beginning of it before the BLM narrative was the race narrative was inserted into COVID, uh, where, for the brief happy moment of about a month, woke ideology was completely dead. Right, I remember that. Nobody cared about it. So there was all this like cross pollination, like uh, between like me and Cantbot and Red Scare and all of that like mixing together, and um, it was a fun moment. And I was uh, not, you know, in the know at the time. Uh, it took me it took me a few months to get in the know um, about you and everything, and but I had been listening to Red Scare already at that point, so I noticed how their numbers just exploded. You know, in those first few months, like on Patreon, they yeah. had I think they were at like what were I mean I'm trying to remember they were at like twelve I feel like they were at twelve thousand dollars a month when I looked I at the time. Feel like they were around there. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't remember. Um, we also had a leg up because we had been recording our entire podcast remotely uh, the whole time. And before that, everyone's podcast, they were like, well, only record it in person and whatnot. So it was like, come down to Red Scare and everything. Um, and then everybody had to figure out how to record remotely. Uh, yeah. So you were ahead of the game with the, yeah. with the remote thing, um, which is funny how that's become totally the normal way of doing it now. And uh -huh. um it's basically it's it's basically like it's only Joe Rogan and Brett Easton Ellis, I guess also Mark Marin if you care about him. I um, mean, if you live in New York, you can. Yeah. Well, same <laughs> with LA. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Although Rogan forces people to go to Austin for his thing, which is grimly amusing, I guess. Who does he even have on these days? I mean, I know I don't really. <sighs> it's the same that. cast of characters, but I tell you this: if he had, you know, once in a while, he. I mean. I was so disappointed with his performance with David Mamet. He had David Mamet on 
couple months ago. Um, and man, did he mail that in. And it was frustrating. He was being like a little Boston libtard brat with David Mamet. Like he was just not, ta- he was just not in there at all. And I'm like, that, that was like, I really annoyed me to be honest with you. So mm. I don't even know that he, I don't know that, you know, I mean, you know, Rogan's usefulness comes and goes. Um, there's obvious, there's this place, he has this very specific place in the culture where when things are especially insane and everyone's afraid to talk about something, he can, he finds a way that where he can talk about it in a way that is palatable to most people, you know, and like that kind of centrist, uh, uh, centrist had it up to here, straight man, but you could trust him because he's, uh, you know, he's ultimately he's he's a center lib, um, and he and if he finds this to be too much, and if he he's had it up to here, then well, that means things are truly off the rails, you know. Like he has that like he has that role that I'd never want to take away or diminish because it's a really important role, and and you know we've seen him like we've seen him like become this like lightning rod for podcast hate as like a standing for basically the entire world of independent podcasting, you know, even mm-hmm. though he's making a hundred million dollars at it, but still like, so we've seen him like be attacked by all the wrong people for all the, the right reasons. Um, and I don't want to take that away from him, but I feel like when he has a really good guest on like a, like a high IQ guest, I don't think that's a great fit for his show, but anyway, they all show up to his fucking pl- place in Austin um, yeah. Other than that, yeah. But LA, I mean, you know, LA is easy too. LA is, it's not, it's not as easy as New York if you're a podcaster because it seems like all of the podcast persons, like the Who's of Whoville, live there. Um, <laughs> but you know, the Who's of Brooklyn, like Bernie Whoville, the Bernie Who's. Um, and uh, but you know, I have enough kind of access here to people. At least there's people, you know. Whatever, uh, and I'll and I'll and I'll go wherever I need to go. Ultimately, I don't give a fuck. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, uh, but my but my, my style is different. My my style, my very taste style, is not the same as just like you know having an it's studio live podcast. Which on the streets? Yeah, I'm on. Yeah, I'm on the streets. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a I'm an urban podcaster. You know what I mean? I'm like I do uh-huh. it urban style gorilla. I do it like you know I I take you right there, man. It's so real, Bran. <laughs> It's fucking real. But anyway, who gives a shit about my podcast on my podcast? The point is Joan Didion. The point is you for I'm trying what I'm trying to say is that apart from I'm assuming you had some social disappointments in terms of like friends who went off the rails at George Floyd around George Floyd time. Oh, I didn't have any friends by that point. So you see, you're ahead of the no, game. I, I haven't had yeah, I'm ahead of all the trends. I haven't had friends since 2016, really. Like, uh, supporting Trump was kind of like an okay eccentricity, like a quote-unquote bit, right? Uh, you know, before he actually won. But when he won, that was when they made it official that, and, uh, like, told me that I was responsible for, uh, I would get sent to a concentration camp. Uh, and everyone's, like, foreign relatives and whatnot would get shipped back and... You know, oh, do they God. have to pay for none of that turning out to be true? No, of course not. But yeah, I've I've been a pariah here for uh, a really long time because all of my uh, like college friends and whatnot they were straight people guided by you know, libtard women. But you know, I don't even care anymore. It's uh, 
Well, I mean, you're used to it. You were ahead of the game by by. It's been so long, not I having just any can't friends. Even imagine like like I answering to like an IRL gay scene or whatnot. Totally foreign to me now. It's been since it's been like more than half a decade. Yeah, I you know for me it was a very sudden drop in a sense um, where it was combined because I was trying to find my way of existing in insane libtard society and, you know, talking myself into, I mean, we've talked about this on Fountainhead and stuff on the Fountainhead app, but uh, trying to talk myself into rationalizing it all as a, as, you know, steps in the process, which it is in a way. I mean, I do feel like, you know, it's 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 much too easy especially now and it's something that i have to kind of correct in myself already but like it's much too easy to just completely float away from the grass and touching grass you know what i mean and like uh-huh. when i when i witness the the kind of discourse cycles that we find ourselves in online and you know as we've been doing lately and with such utter like boredom and dismay it's clear that you have to you have to find something in the grass world to m- moderate um, the kind of the the digital world, don't oh, you think? Yeah, of course. Um, well, once you start logging on and you develop your little community of based and red pilled computer friends, uh, you know which. The point of all that is, of course, to transition that into real life friendships. As um, I've been, tra- as I, that was my, <laughs> yes. I've been dying on that hill as since day you're, one. You're, you're, yeah, that's obviously the point of all of it, and you're really good about that. Um, it, but like, it seems really invigorating and exciting at first when you haven't been through like five of the discourse cycles, because yeah. um, you see how lame it is once they get. Once they get started about uh, one of the things, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? like, well, let's not even bring it up. I mean, it's just yeah, like, yeah. Once they get, you know, there's several of the things, and at this point, you know, maybe Didion was turning me off so much today because I feel that kind of uh, nihilism right now, <laughs> right? <laughs> because I'm, I'm so just sick of it all. I mean, it's. Um, uh yeah the there was this wonderful gush of real energy and like camaraderie during like peak trump and everything and now you just see how these discourse cycles really don't matter you really need something else so i i like making my show and i like talking about art and movies and stuff um but you really cannot place all of your eggs in the basket of doing discourse online. And you see uh, how sad those people who do that often, they are podcast haters. uh, Of course, of course, by the way, the the people who do 24 seven around the clock for screenshot, very important threads about the day's discourse. They're the ones who have no podcast to back it up and they're doing it all for free. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, you're describing my arc, compl- you know, precisely, which is at first when I started to interact with people and they started interacting with me, which was around the time you added me to the group chats, as I was just the telling group them, chats. Yeah. As I was just telling um, 
uh, Thaddeus Russell, not just, but in the, re- the recently released episode, um, where I told him about your Me Tooing. Um, and yeah, I mean, the group, you know, already, of course, people we were thought were friends, <laughs> just like decided for no reason other than it's seemingly online digital addiction logic to railroad us. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> like people uh, that we were literally enjoying the company, the online company of for months, mm-hmm. and in your case, years, for no reason, literally, um, except that they needed to find something to get angry about today, you know? Yeah. That's literally yeah. all it was. And whatever devious little uh, uh, agents of, uh, uh, you know, agents of chaos were talking and were jibber-jabbering <laughs> in their ear. <laughs> Fucking little... Anyway, oh, it's, it's yeah. good. It's good that there's been all this drama, honestly. It's good. It's to, great. I mean, I'm good. glad that I don't uh, have to answer to as many of these religious dogmatists anymore. So <laughs> it's good. I don't, it's great. It's great to uh, shed people once in a while so you don't have to constantly censor everything you say in order not to offend the papacy for instance for instance just as an example for you're throwing just out just as a randomly chosen example just random out of the ether uh, you, you know, know the creepy saying. occult corporation of the catholic church uh, to not offend them and it's like yeah well we've talked about that particular uh, situation honestly and it's just like again it's just it's it's purely this digital logic which which you know, is in some is compatible with some real world uh, trends and less compatible with others. I mean, you see some you see some people. You know, you see some things. And obviously, the Catholic the, the Catholic thing is perfect is so very online suitable at least for these times because look at all the crazy people who have run with that just like over five like being converted fifteen minutes ago. But yeah. um, I just try to save all of my discourse for uh, podcasts now especially paywalled ones so somebody is making money off of it uh it's better for the economy tweeting it for free i've i've done my due diligence of uh epic tweeting and i try not to do that as much anymore i just want to put it all behind a paywall so the little piggies have to click on there and pay all my friends five dollars to hear what he said about the latest thing can you believe what he said He's so ridiculous. Can you believe what he said? Well, that's fine. You can hear it for five dollars. Five dollars is not that much. Yeah. You know, I mean, if they're listening this far, they, you're not going to get that. it in the form of a little tweet anymore, piggies. Well, you you know, you may have um, both ended your your epic tweet career. I don't think so. I'm I'm sure you'll epic tweet again whenever you fucking feel like it. But I will. I like having my last name on there now because I feel less tempted to epic tweet. Right, you're just like <laughs> it's your insurance. It's like your reminder to yourself that people are yeah, paying attention. Like, should I post this picture of a gollywog uh, right under? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good because you know it for it forces you to, um, it kind of like forces you to be responsible for what you write, and and you know people think that that means. Only the obvious bad thing, which is you're going because because people think that means being a blue check, which is uh-huh. when you're a careerist, uh, a mild, a milk toast careerist who has bought into a certain game of not telling 
the truth, you know, not telling too, not, not revealing too much of yourself ever and playing all within the right boundaries and being this nice, you know, responsible professional, blah, 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 blah. But if you've chosen a different path and your path is more of the truth teller path or more of the zany performer path or being like really funny path and not being responsibly funny, then you're still, you know, it, it just, it could force you to maybe just be better at what you do and not like just get not like waste time on bullshit basically is what i'm trying to say like it's a way of reminding yeah. you not to waste time with didn't you know put the put the better version of whatever thought is running through your head don't necessarily nix it but just you know make it worthwhile because it's your name is on it don't get yeah. involved in some stupid little uh campaign like a, like like all these anons typically do because they have yeah, no they think that you know the the Utter truth can only be spoken if you if it is not attached to anyone's identity, which I have always said is ridiculous because anonymity just causes you to act evil and chaotic. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't mean you're you're just finally able to tell the truth because you're li- liberated from your persona. Like if you're just, you know smearing shit all over the walls like it's not the same thing it's um but you know when they get into their little uh puritan cycles uh like with the libs of tiktok stuff they were like coming after me for specifically for not tweeting my support of libs of tiktok like i was like Taylor Swift not specifically condemning Donald Trump or something, you know, just just out of, after a certain point, I just fucking hate all these people because like they're just addicted to the internet and uh, shrieky puritans. Um, but if they want to hear me, they can listen to my podcast and pay me for it. So. The Perfume Nationalist, everyone knows at yeah, this point. Yeah, it's the Perfume Nationalist. It's patreon.com slash Perfume Nationalist and uh in order to hear the complete continuing story and in order to hear my uh spicy little takes and everything you have to pay me five dollars and i i will be i made my um podcasting debut or as i prefer to call it debut um but you know we can go with the french pronunciation debut on um on your podcast back in august hasn't even been a year yet and no it's that was for the fountainhead um, which, which, which I'm really glad we did because I think that that made a lot of that change that like, that was a kind of a meaningful ultimately. Yeah. It was, a, it was a paradigm shift. Yeah. Which was Truly. really gratifying for me. It's really fun. They get real, real mad. It's a, that's the best episodes to do is a subject that they get mad about with no explanation right. necessary. Right. Like Ayn Rand. So, you know, yeah. Like, uh, you know, no abortion necessary from a lover that has spurned you, as was necessary for Joan Didion. No, no, that's not necessary to get mad about Ayn Rand and to get and to get crazy over Ayn Rand. So that was a lot of fun. I also, you know, that was a that that was for many reasons for me cathartic. And then I was on recently for my second go, which was for Nashville, the film by Robert Altman, which was a lot of fun. And I'll be coming on for my third time in a week for um american crime story impeachment which i'm excited about too and i'm four episodes through and i'll be watching the rest all of them with my mom 
And I'm um, so excited to talk about Sarah Paulson, Linda Tripp, my avatar. She's literally me. Uh, just I I can't get into it. It's just a Linda Tripp show. Yeah, it's, it's it, she to is totally the the queen of that show. And well, mm-hmm. we're, 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 we're not going to give away anything there because um, you're going to have to listen to that uh, mm-hmm. when it happens. Um, this a particularly apt character in this in slouching towards Bethlehem to what we've just been talking about is of course Howard Hughes. Um, and there is this, and it's a great essay she has about Howard Hughes. It's called 7,000 Romaine, Los Angeles 38, which is a walking distance from where I live. And, and it's the location where his, the Howard Hughes, like, you know, his headquarters were at the time um, in a building there. And this is a pair, I'm going to read this page um, because it has one of my favorite lines and it has the line, it's the line that defines for me forever my love of Las Vegas. Mm. And so she's quoting, <clears throat> this is so, at the time, Howard Hughes was in the, in the process of buying Las Vegas. Um, he basically, the mythological version of his Las Vegas story is that he's at the Sands, he's been staying there, you know, indefinitely, the entire top floor. Excuse me, I need to lubricate my voice. He's staying at the Sands, and apparently they try to kick him out eventually because some high roll- rollers are coming into town. <clears throat> so he decides to buy the hotel. And then, uh, uh, so they can't kick him out. So he stays up in there in that top floor. And then at some point, he gets annoyed with the lights coming from the hotel opposite him. So he decides to buy that hotel. And uh, he ends up buying all of Las Vegas, um, <clears throat> making that his his new domain. Um and and so here's a page about and so everyone's gossiping about why like what's he up to in Las Vegas can't be the story we all heard that he just got a, he just wanted to keep on staying there can't be that and so this is this is a piece basically about the mythological nature of Howard Hughes and so he goes so she's quoting an acquaintance of him because okay so by July of 1967 Howard Hughes is the largest single landholder in Clark County Nevada. Within a few months, basically, um, he became the largest landholder. Howard likes Las Vegas, an acquaintance of Hughes's once explained, because he likes to be able to find a restaurant open in case he wants a sandwich. End quote. That is a line that forever will, it's all I need to ever say to anybody who asks me why I like Las Vegas, because it captures I love that line, too. My favorite line yeah. of all time. So I'll, 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 re- I'll read the rest, though, because it's, this is, I think appropriate to what we've been talking about. Why do we like the, those stories so? She's talking about the sto- kind of like the stories related to Howard Hughes. Why do we like those stories so? Why do we tell them over and over? Why have we made a folk hero of a man who is the antithesis of all our official heroes, a haunted millionaire out of the West, trailing a legend of desperation and power and white sneakers? But then we have always done that. Our favorite people and our favorite stories become so, not by any inherent virtue, but because they illustrate something deep in the grain, something unadmitted. Shoeless Joe Jackson, Warren Gamaliel Harding, The Titanic, How the Mighty Are Fallen, Charles Lindbergh, Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald, Marilyn Monroe, The Beautiful and the Damned, and Howard Hughes. That we have made a hero of Howard Hughes 
tells us something interesting about ourselves, something only dimly remembered, tells us that the secret point of money and power in America is neither the things that money can buy, nor power for power's sake. Americans are uneasy with their possessions, guilty about power, all of which is difficult for Europeans to perceive, because they are themselves so truly materialistic, so versed in the uses of power. But absolute personal freedom, mobility, privacy. It is the instinct which drove America to the Pacific all through the 19th century, the desire to be able to find a restaurant open in case you want a sandwich, to be a free agent, live by one's own rules. Which we don't have anymore. You can't get a sandwich. You can't just get a fucking sandwich anywhere. That's been my fucking... Everything has to close at eight because of the pandemic that doesn't exist anymore. As I fucking... My fucking... The whole... My my moral cause now for how long? Like, uh, I will never stop screaming about this. That sandwiches are no longer available past 12 o'clock in big cities. Yep. Why? Why? Travesty. You've got places that... 24 hours, 24-7, painted on their walls, their entire identity since the year of 19. Can't they just get rid of the staff by now and automate it all and make it 24 hours? Yeah, honestly, at this point. I, and, you know, I'm one who loves the middle-aged waitress who's, who's never left the diner and serves me. But if it means... I, I do too, but it's like past the point, like, it seems like the human beings are holding them back from being for maximum convenience and i hear you know all this doom and gloom about automation and robots and everything so why can't they just hurry that up a little bit if and make it 24 hours but i, I feel like it's a whatever it's a moral, it fuck, well, moral you know what's more, thing you know what's more uh inhuman and automated and whatever than having a place that's open but not served by people it's when a place is closed and no one is there on the street anymore and it's dark and desolate. That's not mm-hmm. very human because that's what it is now. The fucking neighborhoods that used to be bustling and muscling until whenever are now dead by 9 p.m. because there's nothing fucking open. And when there is something fucking open, guess what? There are people around and the place is once again bustling and hustling. That's why, despite the fact that I never really cared for it, I have a renewed appreciation for like boys town in west hollywood you know the stereotypical crazy gazy gays gay part of it because uh-huh. at least and and it was like the first to reopen and it was the first to like i saw like angry 60 year old gays just like about masks just like i've got five days left on my gay life calendar i need to live them you know like that whole vibe was there and i was mm. i was happy to see that i was happy <laughs> to see that somebody cared you know about about uh uh, going out and, and getting shit-faced again. Um, so anywhere that has it, I'm super grateful for. And the the places that don't have it, which are still my neighborhood, where, you know, it, it's crawling back here or there, but, like, the places that were open till 11 close at 8, were open 24 hours close at 12, and it's fucking, it's night and day like what that does to life. It's just night and day. And the fact that the the place at like Bob's Big Boy, which sells merchandise talking about 20 with 24/7 all over it, is closed at midnight now and when I went in there at 10:45 one recently, they were out of salad. They mm. were they were out of lettuce. 
Did they not have any lettuce in the establishment? No, they did have lettuce. They just didn't want to chop it because it was too late. It was 1045. I was outraged, outraged. <laughs> I wanted to, you know, uh, Fed post. Um, you know, some, not even, not even just the 24 hour food stuff, but the fact that like half price books, they all close at eight or seven now instead of 9 PM, like from eight to nine, is where it was always convenient for me to go to stores. Um, my book, my favorite bookstore that I've been posting pictures of me buying, spending hundreds of dollars of, for book for used books at, um, also in, in Franklin Village. That used to be open till eleven. Now, closes it. Well, until recently, it was like literally closed on Mondays and Tuesdays and stuff. Now it's open. I think every day until seven, and then on Fridays and Saturdays till eight it used to be open till 11, seven days a week, like 10, 40, 10, 40 PM. You could go in there and you could buy Dennis Diderot's or, I mean, Dennis, a Dennis Cooper book about, uh, you know, gay people f- fucking each other at 10 45. <laughs> you could mm. buy sluts by Dennis Cooper there, or you could buy one of these Joan Didion books, or you could buy, uh, you know, something by PG Woodhouse and have yourself a little laugh over, over some, Golf humor. No more than a dream remembered. A civilization gone with the wind. Gone with the fucking wind. We can bring it back if we just... I, I feel like if we wait, continue waging war, maybe we can bring it back to life. You know, we can't give up. We can't, we can't do the Joan Didion thing and just put on our uh, veil of... Our black veil, lower our veil over our faces and, you know, mope on the corner over there. Like, no, we have. I, I still find plenty of uh, sensory pleasures everywhere to enjoy, um, such as the spaghetti that I'm going to eat. Uh, <laughs> do you want to? Do you want to resume this in the sequel after yes. I've read the White Album? Let's do that. That makes sense because there's okay. a, there's a world of stuff there. And we can start earlier. Yeah, we'll so start we earlier do a, and do there's a big one, and you can say everything that needs to be said about Joan. Yeah, um, yeah. I think we'll complete it there. I want to just see if there's any final words I have about this one. Okay. I'm just looking through my screenshots. Um, um, let's see. She has one about the people getting married in Vegas, which which is pretty touching. Um, yeah, that was just cute. That was a cute one. That was cute. <laughs> That was cute. Yeah, she, I mean, there's some. There are some cute ones here. Uh, the Island Liberals one I read. Um, she has a. She has a cute. This is another cute one, which is actually it's from her Los Angeles notebook toward the end, and and it's. Um, so she's basically. This is interesting because as a filthy Armenian adventures universe follower uh if you're following the complete adventure <laughs> i have to still i still have to figure out how to market that the, to, to tell get it through people's heads that they need to listen to the whole thing you know like you do so successfully uh, yeah you have to tell them it's all one thing it's all you one thing you can't promote the paywalled stuff as a bonus you have to promote it as a part of the story that they're missing right so i'm trying to find the words for that in my in my you know my language to do it uh, in a way that fits you know and shame uh-huh. them for for missing these giant gaps um 
So the complete twisted adventure, the complete plot line, something. I don't want to repeat what you say because that's that's you, you call yours a radio soap opera. Uh huh. The continuing uh-huh. story of the perfume nationalists. Anyway, we'll workshop this. So we figure it out. Uh, I'll keep on changing my uh, texts, you know. Um, but this is interesting because we've talked, as I talked about with Amanda, um, and as I talked about with Shant Mistrobian, as I talked about. Uh, I think even earlier than that on some episodes, you know, talk radio is a big element of L.A. and is a big element of my upbringing. Um, You spend all this time in the car. And for me, it started at age five with Rush Limbaugh and then the local guys, John and Ken, and then Larry Elder around at age nine. And, you know, you're just in the car for hours and hours and hours and hours. You're hearing these people. You want to call in. And I did. I called in at like six to some of them. I didn't have, what the fuck was I, t- what did I have to say? Uh, but I called in and I got on the air. <laughs> I don't remember what the fuck I said. And they were like, are you a kid? At some point they're like, are you a kid? Um, but I'm sure I was mimic. I had some opinion to mimic, you know? Uh-huh. So here's, a, here's, <laughs> here's part. I was, so I, anyway, I'm tickled that all the way back in 1967, or 65 or 66, whenever this fucking particular part of this essay was uh, published, was written. She's quoting, um, what she's overhearing on the radio. Here's why I'm on the beeper, Ron, said the telephone voice on the all-night radio show. I just want to say that this sex-for-the-secretary creature, whatever her name is, certainly isn't contributing anything to the morals in this country. It's pathetic. Statistics show it's sex and the office, honey, the the disc jockey said. That's the title by Helen Gurley Brown. Statistics show what? I haven't got them right here at my fingertips naturally, but they show... I'd be interested in hearing them. Be constructive, you night owls. All right, let's take one statistic, the voice said, truculent now. Maybe I haven't read the book, but what's this business she recommends about going out with married men for lunch? So it went from midnight until 5 a.m., uninterrupted uh, interrupted by records and by occasional calls debating whether or not a rattlesnake can swim. Misinformation about rattlesnakes is a leitmotif of the insomniac imagination in Los Angeles. Toward 2 a.m., a man from out Tarzana Way called to protest. The night owls, who called earlier, must have been thinking about uh, the man in the gray flannel suit or some other book, he said. Because Helen's one of the few authors trying to tell us what's really going on. Hefner's another, and he's also controversial, working in uh, another area. An old man, after testifying that he personally had seen a swimming rattlesnake in the Delta Mendota Canal, urged moderation on the Helen Gurley Brown question. We shouldn't get on the beeper to call things pornographic before we've read them, he complained, pronouncing it pornographic. I say, get the book. Give it a chance. The original provocateur called back to agree that she would get the book. And then I'll burn it, she added. Book burner, eh, laughed the disc jockey good-naturedly. I wish they still burned witches, she hissed. Dang if this little, if this little uh, vignette don't remind me of certain things happening in the recent times of our world. Jackie? <laughs> I know. Jackie? Really, really, really uh, strikes a chord there. Oh, there's one more thing. I have to, okay. I have to, I have to finish with two. I mean, just mm-hmm. to point out, it's a little detailed. But in the Las Vegas, um, in the Las Vegas one, uh, she, okay. There's two more things. I'm sorry. These are just. I'm just gonna. The Las Vegas one. She notices the poppers 
in the bathroom attendant's pocket. Like they have poppers of it. She literally what calls them. What did she Amon. mean by that? The nurse was just doing the poppers, or no, no, no. It wasn't a nurse. I think it was. It was um, um, like they had them on for sale. I think. Oh. I I don't know. Let okay. me see. I it's you're, it's good. I, I'm not sure now. Now that you mention it, marrying absurd. Let's see what the wording is. But I was like shocked when I saw it. Um. Da 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 da. da. Wherever the fuck was it? I'm going to have to find it. Um, oh, let me see. I took a screenshot of it, I'm pretty sure. Um, whatever. I don't want to waste time looking for the exact words, but it was in here. It was, I think, on page 80. Oh, here we go. What people who get married in Las Vegas actually do expect, what in the largest sense their expectations are, strikes one as a curious and self-contradictory business. Las Vegas is the most extreme and allegorical of American settlements, bizarre and beautiful in its venality and in its devotion to immediate gratification, a place the tone of which is set by mobsters and call girls and ladies' room attendants with amyl nitrite poppers in their uniform pockets. So there you go. So I'm yeah, getting, yeah, I mean, did, did party girls like to huff poppers back then too? Cause they do now. I don't, John Waters talks about like back in the day, I don't, when it was a more like medical thing, I don't know. I'm not sure. I was puzzled yeah. by it. But I appreciated her, her appreciation of Las Vegas, by the way, in that one too. You know, I'm always yeah. like, I'm always like look, scanning my eye for, uh, for that and you know one there's another little cute episode from one of them which is the last thing i'll read and i'll let you i'll let you make a cup a pot of coffee and not go to sleep as is your <laughs> habit at this hour this is this is part this is uh part four in uh los angeles notebook the same overall chapter that i the, that the talk radio one came from a party at someone's house in Beverly Hills, a pink tent, two orchestras, a couple of French communist directors in Cardin, Cardin evening jackets. How do you pronounce Cardin? Cardan. Cardan evening jackets. Chili and hamburgers from Chasen's. R.I.P. Chasen's. The wife of an English actor sits at a table alone. She visits California rarely, although her husband works here a good deal. An American who knows her slightly comes over to the table. Marvelous to see you here, he says. Is it, she says. How long have you been here? Too long. She takes a fresh drink from a passing waiter and smiles at her husband, who is dancing. The American tries again. He mentions her husband. I hear he's, mar he's marvelous in this picture. She looks at the American for the first time. When she finally speaks, she enunciates every word very clearly. He is also a fag, she says pleasantly. 